I can always tell the difference when I'm taking heart and soil organ supplements. Check out this review from Laura T on a number of our supplements, including mood memory and brain. She says, I am feeling much better overall with mood memory and brain supplementation, more focused on mental challenges for longer periods of time. If I'm using other options such as the histamine and immune, then my allergy symptoms improve hair, skin, and nails, guess what starts looking healthier? And with her package, hot flashes become more infrequent and less intense after a month. So it is a matter now of picking and choosing what I want to prioritize in my continuing health. I really appreciate the eye-opening experience that food is the cure for what ails us. I love it. I think it's so powerful what organs can do. And there are unique nutrients in so many of these organs. In brain, you have phosphatidylserine, which I've talked about in the past, which is connected with um, improvements in neurodegeneration and um, neurodecline in the elderly and is improving cognition and memory retention in, in, in healthy humans. And then histamine and immune has things like DAO, which may help with those of histamine intolerance, diamine oxidase. So so many benefits to organs, such unique sources of organs, never wasted by our ancestors, shouldn't be wasted today. If you can get them fresh, do that. That's amazing. If you can't get them fresh, check them out at heartandsoil.co. That's heartandsoil.co, where we make the finest organ supplements on the planet, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised in a glass bottle with fancy labels. They're pretty, pretty. They're pretty, pretty. I love them. And we are here to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. And I'm grateful for what we are doing at Heart and Soil. On this week's podcast, I really wanted to dive into mental illness. It's something I've thought about a lot. Um, I think of all of the aspects of medicine, mental illness is perhaps one of the most anachronistic. It is an anachronism. It is stuck in the past. It's 50 to 100 years behind everything else. We're still using treatment paradigms that are 50 years old. We're not really changing our treatment paradigms within Western medicine when we are looking at psychiatric illness. And it's a tragedy because so many people continue to suffer. And that is super sad. Um, and also eating disorders because when you look at animal-based diets, people will look at them and say, this is a restrictive diet. It's going to cause eating disorders or disordered eating. And in fact, as you'll hear in this podcast, there's good evidence that being intentional about your diet and cutting out foods that may inflame your gut or cause leaky gut or lead to neuroinflammation through any one of those mechanisms may in fact be a massively powerful intervention for eating disorders. How about that? An evolutionarily appropriate diet might actually help a lot of people. I've never seen it cause eating disorder ever. Um, so it's a very powerful tool. So that's why I wanted to talk about all these things. I know many of you may know someone or have depression, anxiety, uh, mental illness of some sort, eating disorders. At the end of this podcast, I interview Meg Chatham, who is a woman who came to the animal-based gathering here in Costa Rica and has her own really powerful story of uh, anorexia and how an animal-based diet helped that. So that's a good case study into that specifically. And I try and tie it all together and give you guys some actionable tools to take away and think about with your diet when you are struggling, or you, if you know someone who is struggling with a mental health illness, be it depression, anxiety, a psychotic disorder, binge eating disorder, anorexia, or um, bulimia, or any of those, because I think that our paradigm with regard to those needs to change. And Western medicine in general needs to change. Hopefully I can be a positive part of that moving forward. Uh, this podcast is free. If you appreciate the information here, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is how we sped the message, spread the message, sped the message. That's how we spread, speedily spread the message to more people. And I appreciate that greatly. I also appreciate my sponsors. They make this podcast possible. They're all things that I've vetted and that I uh, think are going to be an addition to your life that will be positive. So please check them out. Um, I want to start by giving a shout out to my friends at Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. They make some pretty great blue light blocking glasses. I'm a big fan of circadian rhythms and protecting my circadian rhythm at night. It means that I wear blue blocking glasses when I'm around bright lights at night. It also means that right now I've got a an EMF blocking pad under my laptop as I'm recording this and 
I don't use ear pods. Those have a lot of radiation uh, connected with them. I'm going to use uh, a low EMF ear pods that are connected with a cord. Blue Box also makes a great pair of those um, that I really appreciate as well. It's in their EMF low line, but they have blue blocking glasses. They have sleep masks. They have this EMF stuff, which I think is amazing. Check them out. Blue Box, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order there. Also give a good, got to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat and organs. This is the mothership, guys. It's where I'm going in the zombie apocalypse. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order there. People always ask me, where do I get my meat? If you're anywhere in the U.S. other than maybe the West Coast, you can get your meat from White Oak Pastures. They do shipping all over the place. It's a little hard to get all the way out to California for them. But if you're middle of the country, Texas, East Coast, South, Florida, check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. You can even go to Bluffton, Georgia, meet Will and Jenny Harris. 120 years in the farm, sixth generation family farm. They do amazing, amazing work. And they're 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 feeding us well. This There's not a lot of regenerative farmers driving Ferraris. In fact, there's none. Will Harris drives a beat up pickup truck. None of them are getting rich. They're just doing a great service by helping us improve the soil, improve ecosystems, and feed ourselves and our families with really good food. Check them out, whiteoakpastures.com, CarnivoreMD, for 10% off your first order. I got a new addition to my house here in Costa Rica. It's an ice barrel. You can find them at icebarrel.com. That's I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com. You can use my code Paul, but it's cool because I'm in Costa Rica, but I still like doing saunas and cold plunges. I like the ice barrel because it's really low tech. I don't have to plug it into an outlet. It doesn't have to use electricity. It's got a really minimal footprint. I can just fill it with water and then dump a bunch of ice in. I put it in the shade and I can get an ice bath with my friends. No problem. It's super high quality plastic. It's durable. It's made in the USA. It's a super fun thing. So many of us are suffering from depression, anxiety, stress, and man, I love biohacking with an ice bath. And this is a great thing to incorporate into your life. So check them out. It'll help you recover faster, feel better, connect deeper. You can use the code Paul uh, at icebarrel.com, I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com for 125 bucks off your ice barrel. Take your recovery and all that other good stuff to new heights, mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, I love cold plunging. It's amazing. Uh, last but not least, got to give a shout out to my friends at Aura. Um, there is a real problem with cybersecurity these days. Uh, have you recently had a friend request from someone you didn't know or someone could have been sworn to already connected with. It could be a scammer trying to make you the next victim. How many times have you received a notification that a website you use was hacked or your personal information is at risk? A lot, right? If you think protecting yourself is too confusing, difficult and time consuming, that's what hackers are talking for. Every 10 seconds, someone becomes a victim, a victim of fraud or identity theft. A lot of these people never recover their stolen money um, or can help protect you from this. You can um, secure your online presence from hackers and scammers, noisy advertising companies at aura.com, A-U-R-A.com from slash carnivore. Uh, when you use my link, uh, that, that code carnivore, you can get 40% off all plans. They're a new type of security system that protects your online data, connection, and devices. One simple subscription, you get alerted to fraud and threats fast. If your online passwords or accounts are leaked, someone tries to open a bank account in your name, little stinkers. The app will also protect your devices from malware, encrypt your Wi-Fi. They have an easy online dashboard. All plans come with a million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds. Experience US-based customer support. It's got your back. So if you want to secure your online presence from hackers, scammers, and noisy advertisers, I hate them, go to aura.com, A-U-R-A.com, front slash carnivore, and get 40% off all of their plans. All right, that is it, guys. On to the podcast for this week. Enjoy it. Talk to you soon. What is up, Truth Seekers? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. This week, I wanted to talk about 
mental health and its root cause. I wanted to talk about mental illness, depression, anxiety, psychotic disorders, eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. And I wanted to talk about where I believe the medical paradigm is lacking with regard to the treatment and the characterization of these processes. Most of you know that I'm a classically trained medical doctor, trained in the medical system within the West. I went to medical school at the University of Arizona, did my residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. Before I went to medical school, I worked as a physician assistant for four years in cardiology. I did my physician assistant degree at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And so I've had a number of years within Western medicine, and I very much appreciate all of my colleagues. None of this is meant to be a criticism of any physician. I think that generally the physicians I have met over my years are extremely intelligent and totally well-meaning. This is meant to be a critique of the medical paradigm and the system. I'm not quite sure why the system is the way it is. I have some ideas based on my personal experience, and I will talk about them in this podcast. But let's just say that from my perspective, the medical system in the West isn't really helping people lead better lives. Sure, it's great at correcting acute illness, at fixing your broken arm or your broken leg or doing a surgery if you rupture your spleen in a car accident or removing a cancerous growth within your body or giving you a stent if a plaque ruptures in an artery acutely. But long-term, I'm not sure that Western medicine is helping us lead better, happier lives because Western medicine doesn't do a great job of addressing the root cause of chronic disease. Western medicine is focused on naming illnesses. And then when we name the illness, we pat ourselves on the back and pick out of our back pockets one of the myriad drugs that we are taught to so proudly display and use as modern day shamans within Western medicine. And that is what we do. We name things and then we always have a drug for it if we can name it. Once we run out of drugs for something, it is untreatable in the mainstream Western medical paradigm or it doesn't exist. If there are conditions within mainstream uh, society that don't have drug treatments, they are either considered idiopathic, which means we don't know what causes them, untreatable, unremediable, or they don't even exist. They're thought to be psychogenic or the figment of someone's imagination because we don't have a drug for it, therefore it can't actually exist. Mainstream Western medicine, I think, also falls short because it is so focused on medications. And I believe this is one reason that the paradigm is wrong. And maybe it's something that I can be a part of correcting within my lifetime. But our medical education mostly focuses on how to diagnose something and then how to treat it with a medication. It doesn't really focus or challenge us as medical trainees, as medical students, as residents to actually think about what causes an illness and then how you might correct that one thing. Perhaps this is because that delicately tiptoes into the realm of nutrition and nutritional biochemistry, which is a very murky land. All of you know this if you listen to any of my podcasts or follow any of my work, it's an extremely murky land. It's Mordor for sure, the Mordor of the nutritional morass, but it's worth going to because I believe this is where many of the most profound challenges lie and many of the, where many of the most profound changes and improvements in long-term quality of life result when we are actually able to think, to cogitate on this deeply and to make moves and help people understand what is the root cause of their illness. So this is, I think, why considering these issues is so important. And I think that because we are so focused on pharmaceuticals within Western medicine, that's what our training says. And we don't see things outside of the lens of how to treat it with a molecule. The other problem with Western medicine is it doesn't make connections between disparate illnesses very well. It likes to categorize, to balkanize, to silo, to pigeonhole diseases and not understand the way that these things are connected. But as you will see in this podcast, as you will hear in this podcast, Insulin resistance is connected with so many pathologies, and yet 
we don't think about correcting insulin resistance when we're thinking about mental illness. We don't think about correcting insulin resistance when we're thinking about eating disorders. We don't think about correcting insulin resistance when we are thinking about autoimmune disease, but these all have very clear connections. And I think that correcting insulin resistance, which is also known as metabolic dysfunction, should be at the center of every medical treatment paradigm. But that confounds us in Western medicine because we have to have specialists. And what type of specialist is going to treat insulin resistance? Well, that's usually an endocrinologist, but an endocrinologist doesn't necessarily want to treat cardiovascular disease. An endocrinologist doesn't want to treat other diseases that are outside of their purview. So it, it stymies us. It's a bugaboo for us within Western medicine because our system is designed poorly. We try and silo things. We try and create specialists who only treat one specific thing with their fancy medication, their fancy intervention, their fancy imaging, but then they don't understand that all of it is connected. When I was working in cardiology as a physician assistant, the cardiologist literally would tell me to think within the heart box. Don't think about the patient's thyroid. Don't think about the patient's diabetes. That is the realm of other doctors. That is not your job within this practice as a PA to do cardiology work and also to think about their diabetes or to think about their autoimmune disease. But what if they're all connected? That is what I believe to be the case. And I believe that by treating illnesses individually, we are doing patients a disservice and many of you continue to suffer. Specifically with regard to mental illness, the mainstream Western medical paradigm is that this is a neurotransmitter imbalance. And that is probably because we have medications that affect neurotransmitters. We don't have good medications to affect gut permeability. We don't have good medications to affect inflammation in the brain, that is neuroinflammation, that is uh, these myeloid cells called microglial cells, which mediate inflammation within your brain. We don't have good medications for that, so we don't think about that in the mainstream medical paradigm of mental illness. But as you'll see in this podcast, there is a large amount of evidence that people with diabetes, suicide completion or attempting suicide, have higher levels of inflammatory mediators, specifically interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha within their cerebral spinal fluid around the brain or around the spinal cord, and that within their brain, the microglial cells, which are brain-derived macrophages, members of the brain uh, innate immune system are activated. They are turned on. The immune system in these people is activated. And guess what? The same thing happens to people who are having issues with eating disorders. And the same thing happens to people who have issues with dementia, a neurodegenerative disease. So they're there are connections we must draw. And I believe that by drawing connections between at least upon first glance, apparently disparate diseases helps us understand the root cause pathology here. And that is how we really correct them. Before we dive into all of this on this week's podcast and talk about mental illness, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and some evidence that I think points to a, uh, a dietary cause, a nutritional cause, a biochemical cause, an inflammatory cause for these, or at least connections between all of these elements of the human existence. I wanted to respond to something that happened on Instagram this week. There was someone in the nutrition space who pointed out who was making fun of something I did. And they said, here is this supposed doctor. I guess they didn't know that I'm a doctor or people always doubt that I'm a real doctor, but guess what? I'm a real fucking doctor. Um, I find that to be incredibly disrespectful after going through more than a goddamn decade of medical training. Um, but, uh, and doing all of my board exams, being board certified, et cetera. So, he was trying to look askance or askew at the fact that I was a doctor, which is bullshit. And then uh, he went on to say, you know, why, why is this guy telling you kale is bullshit? Uh, life is about having fun. He goes on to crack a beer and he said, you know, even if kale were, were bullshit, why would you care about that? Life is about enjoyment. You should enjoy life. And this, this made me so angry when I saw it because he's completely missing the point. And I've said this before on my podcast and on my social media. Listen, if you are thriving, if you really truly believe deeply that you are thriving, you are 
healthy in terms of mental state, emotional stability, sleep. You are kind to people in your life. You are self-centered in terms of your awareness. You have mindfulness. You are selfless in your actions. You are a ripped beast. You have a good uh, body composition. You are crushing your sport. You are mentally clear all the time. If you are all those things, why change anything about your life? Keep drinking your beer. Keep having your fun. The work I do is not for those of you who are thriving. The work I do is for those of you who are suffering. And that's what this guy's missing. My message is for the people who are suffering. What about all the people who are suffering? And I think that the majority of people, the majority of you listening to this have one aspect of your life, whether it's sleep, libido, body composition, mental clarity, mindfulness, whatever, that you're not optimal in. And I had it myself. I had autoimmune illness. I didn't want to have asthma my whole life. I don't want to have asthma my whole life. What is going on? Those limited my ability to do things like jujitsu when I was in medical school or go surfing when I was in residency in Seattle. So this is why I do the work I do. I don't do the work I do to be a puritanical whip cracker. I do the work I do so the people who are suffering will find a different truth that will allow them to lead a better quality of life, motherfucker. (laughs) So this really kind of pissed me off. Um, I'm sure that he'll hear of this through the grapevine. I won't mention his name, but he completely missed the point. The point is not that I am this, this guy who's trying to deprive you of your enjoyment of life, to tell you that kale is bullshit, that potatoes are bullshit. The reason I'm doing that is because I think that for a lot of people, if they heed that warning or if they just try, they might find improvement in quality of life. And it's something that I'm offering free. I'm not not making it mandatory that you can't eat a potato or a piece of kale or a beer in your life, but I don't think any of those things is going to improve your overall health. And I think that if you are suffering, some of those things may be at the root cause. I do believe there are people in the world whose autoimmune disease will get better if they stop eating potatoes. I know that sounds crazy, but I think there are people who need to hear that message. And look, if you're thriving, and I'm sure this guy's completely thriving, who's making fun of me. If he's not, then he's completely hypocritical. Then don't worry about it. Just take my potatoes or bullshit and discard it and say, okay, I get it. But the place I do it from is a place of empathy and compassion, trying to share this message with those who are suffering because so many people continue to suffer. Do I think the kale is hurting people? I do. Do I think that goji berries are hurting people? Goji berries are a nightshade. They absolutely could be triggering autoimmunity for some people. No food is perfect, but what are the least toxic foods? I think that animal meat and organs and fruit are clearly the least toxic foods. And by focusing on those for many reasons that I've talked about over and over and over on this podcast, I think that a lot of humans will lead to a higher quality of life, will be led to a higher quality of life, will find a higher quality of life, will feel better and get to do more good in the world. That's why I do the work I do for those who are suffering. So now that that's off my chest, uh, let's talk more about this podcast, which is about mental illness. And this one is important because the burden is massive, massive. I mean, for the last few years, it has been felt that depression is the single leading cause of loss of quality of life of humans on the planet. I believe that there are over 322 million people diagnosed, and that was in 2015 or 2017. I'm sure that there's over 400 million people who were just diagnosed with depression in the world. And there's probably over a billion people when you think about people who are not actually getting treatment for their depression or getting this diagnosed. A billion people potentially, like a massive portion, a massive portion of the population is having depressive illness. What is depressive illness? Well, like I said, the mainstream medical system will treat this as a neurotransmitter issue, but I don't think that's the proximate cause. I think there's something else going on. I'm going to talk about that in this podcast, and that is neuroinflammation. The immune system in the brain is activated. Depression, anxiety, bipolar, psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, and even eating disorders, I believe, anorexia and bulimia 
are likely to have at least some significant connection. A significant portion of the etiology there is neuroinflammation, which means you could really characterize these as an autoimmune disease, as a disease of the immune system in the brain turning against itself. So the question for this podcast becomes, why is the immune system doing that? I will get to that at the end of this podcast. If you want a preview of that, I think that it probably has to do with the gut and that there are things that are irritating the gut. And we will talk in this podcast, things like lectins, potentially plant toxins are irritating the gut and driving that. Are you saying, Paul, that the food we eat could cause depression, anxiety, eating disorders? That's exactly what I'm postulating. That's the hypothesis I'm advancing here. We will dig into all of the details in this podcast. And at the end of the podcast, I've included a short interview with Meg Chatham, who is a, an incredible woman who came to the animal-based gathering here in Santa Teresa while she was in Santa Teresa for the animal-based gathering. I heard part of her story about having anorexia. She tells that story at the end of the podcast. We did a short interview, and then she talks about what interventions have been helpful for her and how eating an animal-based diet has been helpful for her, something that the mainstream medical establishment would call restrictive and would argue against or would argue something like an animal-based diet might cause an eating disorder when, in fact, this is really helping her significantly. This is such an important point to drive home, guys. I do not believe that an intentional diet like an animal-based diet that is intentionally moving out some foods or eliminating some foods that could be harmful to humans. I don't believe that is restrictive. I see it as intentional and powerful. It's a powerful lever. And what if that type of diet, this is the question I'm asking. This is the hypothesis that I am fascinated by. What if that type of diet could improve neuroinflammation in the brain and could help these mental health disorders where not a whole lot else helps a lot at all because we don't have good treatments for these, right? This is the problem. Depression, anxiety, the treatments are horrible. Uh, they have some efficacy perhaps, but we know they have many side effects. Eating disorders have no pharmaceutical treatment. The treatments are not that helpful. Many people relapse. Many people continue to suffer, as I talked about earlier. And that is why I am doing this. I'm not doing it to make it unfun in life. If you guys follow any of my stuff outside of my podcast, you know that I like to have a lot of fun in my life. Before I get into some of the literature that I wanted to review in this podcast, I wanted to also talk about a concept that I first discussed in my book, The Carnivore Code. And this is the concept of what I called the Plinko effect. Plinko is a game in, what was it in? Price is Right, where you had a disc on a slanted board. The slanted board had a bunch of pins in it and you drop the disc. I always thought it was kind of interesting visually to watch the disc stochastically randomly go through all these little pins on the board and end up in a slot at the bottom. Obviously the contestants would, would try and position the disc at the top of the board to end up in a, in a slot at the bottom with the most amount of money or the free car or the free house or whatever. But you can't tell how, where it's going to go because these pins are positioned uh, throughout the board and it's stochastic. You don't really know exactly where the disc is going to fall at every one of those points. And my attempt, my intention in the book was to relate this to illness, chronic illness in humans. Why do some people get eczema like me or psoriasis or lupus? Why do some people get Hashimoto's thyroiditis? Why do other people get Sjogren's disease? Why do other people get whatever autoimmune disease you pick? Multiple sclerosis. Why do some people get um, dry eyes? Why do some people get depression and anxiety, which I would characterize as neurological autoimmune diseases? Why do some people get eating disorders and not others? This, I think, is a key concept that Western medicine is missing, that we all have chinks in our armor. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our Achilles heel. And when we get out of line, when we do things that are evolutionarily inconsistent, and that I think is the key here, when we do things in our diet, in our life, whether it's not enough sun, not enough sleep, messing up the circadian rhythm, exposure to toxins, eating foods that are evolutionarily inconsistent, then that Achilles heel is manifest, is amplified. 
For me, it seems to be eczema. That is where my body demonstrates or shows me that I have something out of balance, whether it's inflammation in some way, shape or form. I ate some food, I did something. It's eczema. As a kid, it was asthma too. Thankfully, that's not a big deal for me. I don't get much eczema, if any, anymore uh, since changing my diet, which is one of the things that got me interested in this in the first place. And there are many similar stories to mine with elimination type diets, with intentional type diets that would be considered restrictive or something by the mainstream, but I think are quite powerful in this way if we really believe that these food can be such massive levers for us at the level of the gut and potentially at the level of autoimmunity more broadly. But the key point is this. I believe that for many of us, the root cause is the same. And that while Western medicine wants to subdivide illnesses into thousands, hundreds of thousands of illnesses and categorize and pigeonhole and make a million cubbies for this type of disease, XYZ subclassified, I think what Western medicine misses when it does this is the fact that so much of these diseases are related to the same things, the same pathologies are connected with so many of these things for us as humans. And I think that the major pathologies are GI inflammation connected with dysbiosis, the overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria. Why does that happen? Leading to colloquially something known as leaky gut. And then more broadly, possibly connected with things like metabolic dysfunction. So I think those are the drivers of so many issues for humans. Certainly mold exposure, certainly heavy metals are an issue, certainly stress is an issue. But I think that those things, dysbiosis, leaky gut, metabolic dysfunction, a lot of that is connected with mitochondrial dysfunction. These are the major drivers and they manifest differently in every individual, which is why everything looks so different. One person gets heart disease, one person gets diabetes, one person gets dementia. Some people get all of it at the same time. One person gets depression, one person gets anxiety, but what if it all has a very similar cause? And by thinking about things from an evolutionary perspective, we can actually affect massively most of these conditions or many of them. This is why I think that an ancestral evolutionary perspective is so powerful. And many would criticize this perspective and many would criticize this perspective by looking at people like the Hadza, who I visited in Tanzania this past year. My friend Anthony did a post on Twitter, it went viral. He talked about our trip to Tanzania. Anthony Gustin, I'll put his handle um, in the show notes. I think it's Dr. Anthony Gustin on uh, Twitter. But he did this post on the Hadza that went viral and he talked about the things that we observed. You can listen to the previous Hadza podcasts I've done on that experience if you want more on that. But people responded over and over and over. The Hadza live to be 33 years old and they have an infant mortality of 21%. And I'm kind of incredulous looking at this and thinking, don't you understand that those two are connected, that their life expectancy of 33 years old is confounded by the fact that they have an infant mortality of 21%. That's the reason their infant, that's the reason their life expectancy looks to be 33, because I saw so many people in Tanzania with the Hadza who were more than 33. They definitely live to be longer than 33. They definitely live to be older than 33. They live much longer than that. In fact, they live into their 60s and 70s. And as I talked about previously on this podcast, it is well known that when these hunter-gatherer groups, if they live until their teenage years, they live just as long as westernized quote unquote humans with a much better health span. So this notion, there are so many misunderstandings here, but this evolutionarily consistency, this, this evolutionary consistency, this ancestral perspective, I think is so valuable and it gets mistreated or mis, it gets disrespected all too often in my opinion. I think it's such a valuable perspective for us because it really does give us a jumping off point from which to begin asking questions. Like what have we done for millions of years? That to me should be the jumping off point for so many of our medical questions. We should learn anthropology in medical school. We should look at the way that currently living hunter-gatherers live and we should look at their rates of disease, their rates of cancer, diabetes, mental health, their rates of eating disorders, their rates of these neuroinflammatory disorders or at least the manifestations thereof and say, wait, not all humans get 
illnesses in the way that we appear to as westernized humans, what are they doing differently? Could that be part of it? Or is it just that they have a pharmaceutical deficiency? Obviously, I don't believe that to be the case. So let's talk about depression and anxiety and what we know about neuroinflammation and depression and anxiety, and then move into eating disorders and jump off from there. But if you look at the mainstream paradigm for depression and anxiety, this is a neurotransmitter issue. And I think this paradigm is severely lacking, like so many other mainstream Western paradigms. Perhaps the LDL cholesterol paradigm could be characterized as similarly incomplete. But studies like this one, I think, really challenge us to ask pretty profound questions here. So this was a meta-analysis of cytokines. These are cell signaling molecules. These are like the text messages that immune cells send to each other in the human body. There were 24 studies looked at in this meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is a group of studies, it is a study of studies. So there were 24 studies involving unstimulated measurements of cytokines meeting the DSM, that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, criteria for major depression uh, that were included in the meta-analysis. And what you find here is that there were significantly uh, noted differences in depressed subjects relative to controls in IL-6 concentrations and TNF-alpha. So that is tumor necrosis factor alpha. So there were significantly higher concentrations of TNF alpha. The P is massively significant, less than 0.00001. And also they go on to say that IL-6 concentrations were significantly higher. Again, the P value is less than 0.00001 in depressed subjects compared with control subjects. Um, There were no significant differences among depressed and non-depressed subjects for the other cytokines. So their conclusion This meta-analysis reports significantly higher concentrations of pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, and IL-6 in depressed subjects compared with control subjects. While both positive and negative results have been reported in individual studies, uh, this meta-analytic result strengthens the evidence that depression is accompanied by activation of the IRS, which they say is the inflammatory response system. So then we have to ask the question, what is stimulating the IRS, the inflammatory response system, and which comes first? Because Though there is a correlation here, we must always question number one, is correlation causation? I think in this case, there's a pretty solid mechanistic reason to suggest that this inflammation in the brain could be a problem and could be mechanistically linked to the pathologies uh, associated with depression. But we also have to ask, which direction does the arrow of causation go? Or does it go both directions? Is it that people who are depressed are somehow more stressed and that is causing inflammation in the brain? Or is it that inflammation in the brain may trigger depression, anxiety, or even eating disorders in those who are susceptible, in those whose Achilles heel is that mental illness manifestation. And I think that the second uh, possibility is quite reasonable and very probable. And that is, I think, the most compelling hypothesis here, but that is the limitation of what we know at this point. But I think that this challenges us to expand our conceptualization of these mental health illnesses, if indeed depression, anxiety, eating disorders, psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, delusions, are connected with neuroinflammation or are caused by neuroinflammation, the questions then become, number one, what causes neuroinflammation? And number two, how do we correct that? How do we treat that neuroinflammation, either with a pharmaceutical or with a dietary intervention, if indeed dietary is a major factor in what is causing that neuroinflammation in the first place? This is a very fascinating Uh, set of hypotheses to explore. So here's another study. Interleukin-6, that's the same cytokine that was elevated in those who are depressed, is elevated in the cerebral spinal fluid of suicide attempters, and it's related to symptom severity. So this is quite interesting. IL-6 in the CSF 
was significantly higher in suicide attempters than in healthy controls. Patients who performed violent suicide attempts displayed the highest IL-6. Furthermore, there was a significant positive correlation between the MADRAS, which is a measure of depression severity, and the CSF IL-6 levels in all patients, IL-6 and TNF-alpha correlated significantly with 5-HIAA, which is a precursor for or a breakdown product of serotonin, and HVA, which is a breakdown product of uh, dopamine in the CSF, but not with MHPG, which is a, another metabolite, 3-methoxy-4-hydroxyphenylglycol. Um, and they go on to say cytokine levels in plasma and CSF were not associated, and plasma and patients with increased blood-brain barrier permeability did not exhibit elevated cytokine levels. So that's interesting. So they propose a role for CSF IL-6 Interleukin-6, a cytokine, a text message sent between immune cells in the brain in the symptomatology of suicidal behavior, possibly through mechanisms involving alterations of dopamine and serotonin metabolism. That's the 5-HIAA and the HVA in the CSF component there. So is it possible that neurotransmitters are involved in these pathologies, but that they are not the proximate event? They're not the first event. It's not that your serotonin gets broken when you have depression or dopamine gets broken when you have a psychotic disorder or that these are disordered when you have suicidality or a suicide attempt related to mental, uh, mental unhealth. But the question is, could inflammation be causing alterations in these neurotransmitters? And could that then be manifesting in a certain way? I think it's quite possible. But then we have to take the why behind the why behind the why into account and ask, okay, what is causing, what is causing inflammation in the brain? So we'll get to that. But I think that's a really important question to hold in mind. Is there an infection? No, these people don't have, they don't have abscesses in the brain. So what is causing inflammation in the brain? And I think we have to say then, what is causing inflammation in the body? Because the most compelling probability is that the inflammation in the brain is coming from the body. It's coming from some part of the body. These immune cells all coordinate, they all talk. Though these are brain-derived macrophages called microglial cells that reside in the brain, they are connected they can send text messages to immune cells through the rest of the body. And there's a blood-brain barrier through which these text messages can pass. Those are the cell cables. Those are the, that is the transit uh, highway by which these cytokines, these cellular signaling molecules can move into the brain. So it probably comes from outside of the brain. Well, where does it come from in the body? It's pretty good evidence it's coming from the gut, like so many things do. And like so often we are back to the gut, but pause there, dog ear that page, we will come back to it. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, one of the issues that I have with Western medicine is that it doesn't do a great job of connecting the dots, of connecting apparently, at first glance, disparate pathologies and understanding how something like insulin resistance or depression could be related. But there's a good amount of literature here, which is also quite compelling. Consider this study, which is titled Insulin Resistance in Brain Alters Dopamine Turnover and Causes Behavioral Disorders. That's quite fascinating. So this is a mouse study in which they knocked out the insulin receptor. Here we demonstrate that mice with a brain-specific knockout of the insulin receptor exhibit brain mitochondrial dysfunction. So here we are back to mitochondria, and this definitely connects insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction with neurotransmitter neuroinflammation. So they exhibit mitochondrial dysfunction with re reduced mitochondrial oxidative activity increased levels of reactive oxygen species, and increased levels of lipid and protein oxidation in the striatum and the nucleus accumbens. Those are different regions of the brain. They say, as a result, NIRKO mice, 
NERCO, which is those who have had knockout of the insulin receptor, mice develop age-related anxiety and depressive-like behaviors that can be reversed by treatment with MAO inhibitors, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, as well as the tricyclic antidepressants, imipramine, which inhibits MAO activity and reduces oxidative stress. So those two are sort of old-school antidepressive medications within mainstream psychiatry that do affect serotonergic signaling and perhaps dopaminergic signaling to some degree within the brain. They say, thus, insulin resistance in the brain induces mitochondrial and dopaminergic dysfunction, leading to anxiety and depressive-like behaviors, demonstrating a potential molecular link between central insulin, between central insulin resistance and behavioral disorders. Well, how many people have insulin resistance in the world? I think the numbers are pretty similar to depression. Not that they're all overlapping, but there's 400 million plus, and I think the number is at least a billion. It's got to be much more than that. We know that in the United States, the majority of people are metabolically unwell. So is it possible that something about insulin resistance, which we know is going to decrease the ability of insulin to signal within the brain, insulin is a peptide hormone that also signals within the brain. It has effects on the kidney, retention of electrolytes, which is something I've talked about in the past. It has effects on the muscles, the liver, and the brain. Insulin is an important hormone everywhere. And if you're insulin resistant, all of your signals are going to get turned down everywhere. If insulin can't do its signaling within the brain, then you're looking at molecular mechanisms and mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain. Could that lead to inflammation? Yes, it certainly appears to lead to at least oxidative stress. Reactive oxygen species, could it lead to microglial cell activation? Yes, it could. So here's a connection between insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction, and psychological or at least neurological disorders. Is it possible that for many people who have metabolic dysfunction, which is the majority of the US population, because guess what? If you go to the grocery store, I think at least 75% of what's in there is processed sugars and seed oils. Is it any wonder that everyone is sick and no one can get well? Um, is it possible that those who demonstrate metabolic dysfunction and have a coexisting weakness or coexisting Achilles heel in terms of their mental health, other than demonstrating anxiety or depressive behaviors in connection with the metabolic dysfunction? And is it then possible that perhaps treating their metabolic dysfunction could lead to improvements? I would say yes. And I think this is where Western medicine needs to go in the treatment of these disorders. Here's another paper, insulin resistance as a shared mechanism between depression and type 2 diabetes. Well, there you go. February, 2019. They say in this article, we briefly review possible molecular mechanisms associating defective brain insulin signaling with reward system, neurogenesis, synaptic plasticity, and the hypothalamic pituitary axis uh, and stress in depression and the stress axis in depression. We further discussed the involvement of TNF-alpha. We've heard about that before, promoting defective insulin signaling and depressive-like behavior in rodent models. So is it possible that the TNF-alpha, that some sort of cytokine is connecting the system and causing insulin resistance or worsening insulin resistance in the brain? Again, we're back to the question of where does this inflammation come from? They make this important point. Insulin has been implicated with diverse central, that is within the brain roles, like modulating feeding behavior, energy maintenance by the hypothalamus, as well as memory-related processes by the hippocampus. Insulin receptors are expressed throughout the brain, including regions classically involved with mood regulation, such as the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, the amygdala, the raphe nuclei, uh, and knockdown of insulin receptors in the hypothalamus of rats trigger depression and anxiety-like behaviors. That is the study that I just showed you uh, in the previous slide. They say, they go on to talk about the HPA axis. They go on to talk about TNF-alpha. And they go on to talk about a Bavarian cohort with a history of depression having elevated levels of TNF-alpha. Two isoforms of the soluble TNF-alpha receptor and diabetes were commonly observed. There's an association there. 
And so here we go again in a cohort of patients with comorbid depression and type 2 diabetes. Metformin, which has an interesting mechanism that I won't go into in this podcast, was reported to ameliorate depressive behavior when compared to baseline. Is it possible that treating insulin resistance, whether with dietary interventions or with pharmaceuticals, could then improve depression in some individuals? That might suggest that to be the case. Rosaglitazone, which is a pia, um, which is a rosaglitazone, which is a diazolidine, dione type of drug, does improve insulin sensitivity. Now, interestingly, drugs that improve insulin sensitivity also tend to make people fat, um, but it does improve insulin sensitivity. It's not a drug that I'm a huge fan of, but it does provide some antidepressant-like effect in mouse models of depression and type 2 diabetes. So there's some overlap there within the literature. And again, we're talking about connections between insulin resistance and major depressive disorders. Uh, I don't think many psychiatrists are talking about this or thinking about what their patients are eating or getting a fasting insulin on their patients. Let's move on to talk a little bit about eating disorders. Here's an interesting study showing that in binge eating disorders, there is uh, an inflammatory metabolic profile. So this is kind of interesting. Obese patients with a binge eating disorder have an unfavorable metabolic and inflammatory profile. Again, we have to ask the question, to what direction does the arrow of causation go? Um, but clearly there was an association between uh, inflammation, metabolic dysfunction, and binge eating disorders. It's also quite possible that people who are binge eating are causing these things and that it may not be causing uh, the binge eating disorder itself, or it may go both directions. And then also um, some of the more impressive or interesting um, research would suggest that there is an increased risk for autoimmune disorders in patients with eating disorders. And this is quite interesting. So if you look at this study, which is from, I believe, 2014, they say that higher prevalence of autoimmune diseases was found among patients with eating disorders. Uh, it was not exclusively due to endocrinologic or gastroenterologic diseases when the two categories were excluded. The increase in prevalence was seen in patients both before the onset of the eating disorder treatments. So they say, we observed an association between eating disorders and several autoimmune diseases with different genetic backgrounds. Our findings support the link between immune-mediated mechanisms and development of eating disorders. I'll read that again. Our findings support the link between immune-mediated mechanisms and the development of eating disorders. Well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a paradigm shift. A prior autoimmune disease has recently been shown to increase the risk of mood disorders and schizophrenia. The prevalence of eating disorders in type 1 diabetes is reportedly twofold among adolescents in a recent meta-analysis, type 1 diabetes being an autoimmune manifestation of diabetes. And if you go through this paper, they do a great job of showing that there are many studies that show this increased risk of autoimmune disorders and perhaps some sort of an autoimmune immunologic mechanism connected with eating disorders. Okay, so what if, what if, this is the big what if for Western medicine, Western medicine, if you're listening, this question is for you. What if neuroinflammation, what if immunity, what if metabolic dysfunction are major contributors? In fact, what if these are the main contributors to depression, anxiety, and eating disorders? And our models, our treatment models are all wrong. Well, at least they're significantly lacking because they're not even asking what is causing this neuroinflammation. So I think that is a quite interesting question to begin to ask within Western medicine. And again, Within our training as doctors, we are not taught to ask these questions. We are not challenged to ask these questions. We are challenged to recall which drug to give in the diagnosis that you've made. We're not challenged to ask what the root cause is or how you might treat it. So that is some high-level 
appraisal of literature within the mental health space, suggesting that these disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, are probably much more than simply a neurotransmitter issue. And for many people, these can be related to traumatic experiences. I completely acknowledge that. That's a whole separate podcast that I've pretty much already done uh, when I talked about the potential for psychedelics to help us with um, traumatic experience treatment. Um, that one's with Dan Engel. Uh, you can find that one on the podcast previously as well. But I do think that for many people, there is a biological reason here, a neuroinflammatory cause. So this next section of the podcast will be me trying to connect the dots. No one really knows the answer here, but these are some of my ideas and some of the literature that I think might support those hypotheses and or ideas. So this is a very interesting study looking at the role of um, undigested food and the gut microbiome possibly cooperating in the pathogenesis of neuroinflammatory diseases a matter of barriers and a proposal on the origin of organ specificity. This is an interesting paper from October of 2019. They say gut dysbiosis, which is a fancy word for the overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria. And I'll read it again. Gut dysbiosis as a consequence of Western diets, which is an interesting fraught statement, leads to intestinal inflammation and a leaky intestinal barrier. I think that's a pretty reasonable statement. As I talked about in my book, The Carnivore Code, no one really knows what aspect of those Western diets lead to this, but it's pretty clear that a Western diet will lead to intestinal inflammation and a leaky intestinal barrier and gut dysbiosis in many individuals, but life is about having fun. So you should just drink a beer and eat your kale and not ask questions. This is why this pisses me off so much, guys. There are people suffering. We know that Western diets are a problem. Let's ask questions and understand what it is about these diets that is causing issues for people so that people may stop fucking suffering. Gut dysbiosis, as a consequence of Western diets, leads to intestinal inflammation and a leaky intestinal barrier. The efflux, which is the movement of undigested food, microbes, and the toxins like lipoproteins. Um, the, the efflux of undigested food, microbes, and the toxins, as well as immune-competent cells and molecules, causes chronic systemic inflammation. So what they're talking about is the movement of all of these things, either across the gut lining, because you know that very adjacent to the endothelium of the gut, the inner layer of your gut that separates tons and tons of poop and bacteria and undigested food from your immune system, which live in the lamina propria, which is a level, which is a, a layer of your immune system, a layer of cells that is wrapped around the gut, okay? The movement of undigested food, microbes and endotoxins, as well as immune competent cells and molecules between those two places, causes chronic systemic inflammation. I think that's a very reasonable hypothesis. I think we see that being played out. And I think that the gut is ground zero for much of, the, much of this. And I think that the gut is ground zero for much of this. They go on to say, opening of the blood-brain barrier may trigger microglia. Those are those, these are the brain-derived macrophages, the brain-derived immune cells. It may trigger those cells and astrocytes and set up neuroinflammation. I think this is a very reasonable hypothesis. And so we are back to the gut. And I think the gut is the main place, the ground zero for all of this happening. The next section is called chronic neurodegenerative diseases are associated with low-grade chronic, chronic inflammation. We know this. It's all quite clear. The question is, where is it coming from? As they say here, I think it's quite reasonable that it could be coming from dysbiosis, the gut, et cetera. And then the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we affect that negatively? How do we affect it positively? We'll get to my ideas about that in just one moment. One more paper. The role of the gut microbiome, immunity, and neuroinflammation in the pathology, in the pathophysiology 
of eating disorders. So this is back to eating disorders. They say here, there's a growing recognition that both the gut microbiome and the immune system are involved in a number of psychiatric illnesses, including eating disorders. Yes, I would agree with that statement. It should come as no surprise given the important roles of diet composition, eating patterns, and daily caloric intake in modulating both biological systems. Here, we reviewed the evidence that alterations in the gut microbiome and immune system may serve not only to maintain and exacerbate dysregulated eating behavior, characterized by caloric restriction in anorexia nervosa or binge eating in bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder, but may also serve as biomarkers of increased risk for developing an eating disorder. I think this is a great little review if you want to dig into this. And you can see that they say, similar to um, anorexia nervosa, highly effective treatments for bulimic syndromes, including bulimia and binge eating disorder are lacking because we don't really have a good understanding of how to characterize and then perhaps reverse this neuroinflammation or where it's coming from. They go on to say, the last few years have, however, led to a growing recognition that both the gut microbiome and the immune system are involved in a number of psychiatric illnesses, including eating disorders. You can see from this table in the same paper that there's an examination of the gut microbiome and anorexia nervosa and animal models of anorexia nervosa. Multiple papers which show changes in the microbiome um, in anorexia nervosa, decreased alpha diversity, increased, increased clostridial species, increased enterobacteriaceae, et cetera, et cetera, decreased alpha diversity. These are all essentially characteristic of dysbiosis. So we can talk about how all this happens in a moment. Uh, they go on, they show many of these are changing um, with those conditions. And then they have other studies later on in this paper where they suggest summary of peripheral and central immune changes in anorexia nervosa and animal models of anorexia nervosa. There are multiple papers, decreased neutrophil chemotaxis, reduction in granulocyte ability to kill bacteria, increased pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-6, the IL-1 beta, and TNF-alpha, like we saw in depression, increased, increased pro-inflammatory cytokine, TNF-alpha, um, IL-15, VKM-1, IL-6, dysregulated T-cell subtypes, decreased levels of IgM and IgG antibodies, increased pro-inflammatory eicosanoids. So there's a lot of information here. There's a lot of evidence that there is inflammation, neuroinflammation in patients with these eating disorders, but they don't really get treated that way. We don't really ask these questions too often. The same is seen in bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorders, and animal models of those diseases. So I think that what we're starting to see here is a really interesting rabbit hole to fall down and beginning to ask questions. Okay, if there is neuroinflammation in these conditions, how do we treat it? and what is causing it. So let's go one step further and say, okay, if this neuroinflammation is connected with the gut, if this neuroinflammation is connected with GI dysbiosis, if neuroinflammation is connected with leaky gut and damage to the gut, where is that coming from? Where is that being triggered in our diet? So let's go one step deeper. And this is something I spoke about in my book, again, The Carnivore Code, this question, is it possible that some plant foods are triggering this? I think it's possible. We don't have super solid evidence here, but I think it's very reasonable and pretty safe to make these dietary changes, which are intentional, as you'll hear about in the interview I do with Meg in a moment. But I think there is good evidence that lectins, specifically carbohydrate binding proteins, which occur in all foods, but seem to be most problematic in things like seeds and nuts and grains and beans can induce changes in the gut and the gut microbiome that are negative. What? Yes, there's good evidence for this. It's done in animal models, but it's quite interesting and compelling and perhaps a way to connect the dots. Again, this is hypothesis, but I think we need to ask these questions. So here's a study, small intestinal growth, overgrowth, caused by feeding red kidney bean phytohemagglutinin lectin to rats. Okay, so they say here that 
PHA, which is phytohemagglutinin, caused fecal protein, fat, and mucus glycoprotein levels to increase in germ-free animals. It increased jejunal mucus crypt death and crypt mitotic activity. And so they're saying PHA stimulated growth of rat small intestine when present in the diet or instilled into the bowel lumen. So it was causing inflammation and it was potentially causing um, issues within these rat guts when they're giving them this lectin in kidney beans. Well, many within the nutrition space would say that red kidney beans are healthy, um, but they do have this phytohemagglutinin in them, which I think is problematic and is not perhaps, is perhaps not entirely degraded even when you cook it. So here's another one, which I think is even more interesting. Bacteria lectin interactions in phytohemagglutinin induced bacterial overgrowth of the small intestine. Yes, phytohemagglutinin induced bacterial overgrowth of the small intestine. So they say the mechanism of phytohemagglutinin induced bacterial overgrowth of the small bowel in the rat was studied. The background here is that when they give rats this phytohemagglutinin, they do get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Interaction of the lectin with bacterial isolates at selected uh, selected at random from those that comprise the major population of the overgrowth was observed. In both bacterial agglutination assays, assays and glycocalyx stabilization, no specific association between the lectin and the bacteria was seen. So the lectin didn't seem to be interacting with the bacteria, but what they did find was that the lectin was potentially interacting with the gut wall. They would say phytohemagglutinin would not appear to act, therefore, as a direct ligand to mediate bacterial adherence or to modify the mucosal surface to increase bacterial adherence. But there's other papers that show that it looks like the lectin is affecting the gut mucosal wall and decreasing the amount of mucus and mucin in the gut intestinal wall leading to bacterial overgrowth. So is it possible that these lectins in our diet, that these, that these potentially evolutionarily inappropriate foods are causing issues in the human gut by interacting with our gut, by binding carbohydrates on the surface of our, of our actual gut intestinal epithelial cells, these endothelial cells in the gut, that is leading to decreased production of mucus, more contact of these bacteria with the gut wall, leading to overgrowth, leading to inflammation, leading to leaky gut. I think it's quite possible. This may be one of the mechanisms by which lectins are causing this issue in humans. And is it possible that other plant toxins are doing the same? Yes, it is. Now, this is why we do this work, guys. We ask questions, we do experiments. We say, hey, look, meat and organs are super healthy. There are tons of nutritional things in there. If you eat some fruit with it, you're not even going to go into keto or have electrolyte deficiencies. Try and cut out vegetables and see how you feel. Like Focus on animal foods and don't make vegetables the majority of your diet and see how you feel. And can we get this inflammation down? I think it's something that needs to be studied. That's why we're building the animal-based nonprofit. You'll hear more about that in the future because we want to do these actual studies. But I think that the what we know is this. Mental illness is a huge burden to our society. Mainstream nutritional treatments are not great. Physicians are incredibly intelligent and well-intentioned. It's not their fault. I think the fault is the burden. Uh, the culpability really goes to the way that we're thinking about this, the way that our medical students and physicians are taught, the way that we're not actually looking at nutritional studies enough. We're not looking at nutritional causes of these things and looking at the way that modifying nutrition could be a very powerful lever for dealing with these issues. But what we know is that the medications don't work very well that there is a neuroinflammatory component to these. I would suggest and hypothesize that neuroinflammation is probably connected with the gut. So we should look in the gut and see what is inflaming the gut and then ask if there are evolutionarily inappropriate foods in our diet that could be doing this. Start with things like sugar and seed oils and then potentially progress even to things like vegetables, which I believe could be triggering autoimmunity in many individuals. Obviously that's a controversial standpoint to take, but I hope it helps people and relieve suffering. Now you go even deeper and you think about things like lectins or other 
molecules that could be problematic in the gut. And you start to have some really interesting conversations saying, oh, why would these be harmful? Well, they're not really that evolutionarily appropriate. What are the most sought after foods by humans throughout our existence? And if we focus on those, do humans do better? Potentially. So in this podcast, we've started with some things that we do know, and then gone into discussions of things that we're beginning to understand, and then tried to connect some dots for you based on what I believe to be quite probable, but is still in the experimental phase. And it's completely hypothesis at this point. And like I said, we need more studies to address these issues. But I think that in the meantime, while people are continuing to suffer, dietary experiments are pretty darn helpful. And as you'll hear in this interview with Meg, I do not believe for one second that an eating disorder will be worsened by an intentional diet. And I think this is the problem that people from the outside will look at what I do. will look at an animal-based diet and say, organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy, that's restrictive. People have eating disorders. You're going to cause eating disorders. I've never met someone who had an eating disorder triggered by this, but now I've met multiple people who have had eating disorders that appear to be improved significantly at many different levels with this type of a diet that is intentional, but not restrictive. So this is important that within the eating disorders community, we are not stigmatizing intentional elimination diets. And that would be possible if we change the paradigm of these diets to believe they are neuroinflammatory. And if you don't treat the neuroinflammation, how are you actually going to get this patient any better? It's not intentionally, uh, it's not restrictive, it's intentional. And that intention is positive because if you're cutting out foods or combinations of foods that are triggering neuroinflammation potentially through the gut, then you might actually be getting to the root cause. In the case of depression, there's not so much of a concern about limiting foods, but Perhaps some clinicians would have that, that fear, but there's not even an approach that is worried about this. There's, I have very, very rarely heard psychiatrists talk about any dietary changes for their patients with depression or anxiety. And when it has, it's usually been to eat more salad. And I've never, ever heard psychiatrists suggest people eat more meat or organs and cut out vegetables or cut out seed oils to improve their depressive illness. But I think that there are some pretty big levers there that we could pull for people who are continuing to suffer. So that is sort of the, the entirety of the literature and the paradigm that I wanted to present to you guys on mental illness. The takeaway here is that I believe these are neuroinflammatory. I believe many of them are preventable and reversible. For many people, there will be a traumatic component, which I think is best dealt with in therapy. And I'm quite interested in the potential for uh, legalization of psychedelic therapies in the future for these traumatic uh, connections with these illnesses. But I do believe that for many with depression, anxiety, psychotic disorders, and eating disorders, including anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, that there is a neuroinflammatory component and that should be addressed with a dietary focus and intentional elimination of foods that may be worsening the gut, worsening neuroinflammation through leaky gut, et cetera, that that needs to be a major bent of the treatment. There is one other type of intervention that I think is quite interesting in psychiatry today, and that is the use of ketogenic diets. I've had Chris Palmer on the podcast in the past, and there's some literature now to suggest that ketogenic diets may be helpful for certain conditions. Now, I think that long-term, the utility of ketogenic diets in any uh, or most illnesses is limited. Um, certainly, we see them being used long-term in some kids with intractable epilepsy, and I worry um, that in adults, uh, if we try to use ketogenic diets long-term, the compliance will be low and that they will run into electrolyte issues as many do with these diets. But I think short-term, the fact that ketogenic, ketogenic diets are effective in psychiatric illness is an indication that there is probably a mitochondrial problem going on in the brain. The ketogenic diet allows the brain to shift to using a different type of fuel or at least some other type of fuel in addition to glucose 
uh, which is maybe a gluconeogenesis no matter what you're doing. But I think that this is another indication that there is a mitochondrial issue happening um, and that uh, perhaps these are not the end-all and be-all, but they are good adjunctive treatments. This is a review titled Ketogenic Diet for Schizophrenia, Clinical Implications. Chris Palmer is the last author on this paper. Uh, it's a study and they say these results support the ketogenic diet may represent a novel therapeutic approach through restoring brain energy metabolism and schizophrenia. Randomized clinical controlled trials are needed to further show the efficacy of a ketogenic diet as a co-treatment to manage clinical symptoms and metabolic abnormalities inherent to disease and resulted by antipsychotic treatment. One of the main side effects, unfortunately, of antipsychotic treatment in schizophrenia is metabolic dysfunction because many of those medications are mitochondrial poisons. So something to be aware of, but I think the ketogenic diet does have a role, but it's for me, it's a role in pointing out the fact that there are metabolic abnormalities at play here and uh, probably centrally a, um, an issue with mitochondria, as we discussed, which may be related to inflammation and or metabolic dysfunction. So uh, here's another title uh, study, the current state of a ketogenic diet in psychiatry conclusion, despite its long history in neurology, the role of ketogenic diet in uh, mental disorders is unclear. Half of the published studies are based on animal models of mental disorders with limited generalizability to the analog conditions in humans. The review lists some major limitations, including the lack of measuring ketone levels in four studies and the issue of compliance to the rigid diet in humans. Currently, there is insufficient evidence for the use of the ketogenic diet in mental disorders, and it is not recommended as a treatment option. Further research should include long-term prospective randomized placebo-controlled crossover trials to examine the effect of the ketogenic diet in various mental disorders. So I think that it's an indication that there is a mitochondrial issue happening, but perhaps not the end-all and be-all treatment. I would say, let's get to the root cause of the illnesses here. Um, with that, I will end this portion of the podcast. Uh, I'll let this interview with Meg uh, happen. I'll do this quick interview with Meg and talk about her experiences. As she says in the video, uh, feel free to reach out to her. Feel free to reach out to her if you are someone with an eating disorder and you want to hear more about her story. And then I'll come back on after the interview with Meg and wrap it all up. Meg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to share a bit of your story. Yeah, of course. We met at the animal-based gathering in Costa Rica, and for people that weren't there, you definitely missed out. But Meg has a pretty incredible story of dealing with an eating disorder. So I'll let you kind of tell the story, Meg, but maybe you could start with when in your life this began and what it felt like and then where you went from there. Yeah, it began in my teenage years. So I developed uh, an eating disorder probably around 16, 17 years old. Um, it progressed pretty quickly, and um, when I was in college at around 2011, I had to receive um, medical intervention and treatment for anorexia, um, which entailed me going into the hospital, being hospitalized for about a month before moving into a more um, free inpatient, outpatient program, and it felt very interesting. So um, if anybody has ever been through some sort of eating disorder treatment program, you're just slammed with all sorts of emotions, feelings, you're being told what to eat, how to eat, when to eat. You know, at one point early on in the treatment, I was um, put on a feeding tube. So that was nutrition that I had no idea where, what was in it, where it was from, but I needed to be on it in order to graduate out of the program. Um, so I'm not sure how in depth that you'd like me to go, but um, basically in that process, all of my meals were prepared for me. Um, they used the dietary exchange program, um, which included like four starches, you know, four fruits and vegetables. You know, it was a very cut and dry by the book 
type eating program and uh, combined that with traditional therapeutic type tools. So um, cognitive behavior therapy, group therapy, art therapy, those sorts of things. And um, in that process, I, I did restore my weight and was able to go back to college and um, receive different sorts of um, care on a weekly basis while still going to school. And I've since that time, I have been um, relatively weight restored, but had intermittent periods of relapse. And it wasn't until about three years ago when I started working with um, Diana Rogers and getting more involved in the animal-based community did I feel like I could try this way of eating and this diet. And um, within a matter of four to six months, I regained my period, which I hadn't had from probably 17. So I was um, 17 to 28, had no period. And when I started eating this way, I regained my period, which um, for the male listeners probably is uncomfortable to hear. But um, with that came a lot of other different benefits, um, if you're picking up when I'm laying down, and um, felt so clear, clear-minded and energetic um, than I had ever felt before. Um, as you can imagine, my treatment team was very resistant towards me eating this way and still is, um, mainly because it is a very restrictive way of eating. Um, but I have all of my blood work has come back solid. My moods are more consistent and stable than they have ever been. Um, and I have to say that I, I think this way of eating has been the main driver for that. This is what's so interesting. And I, I want to give some framework for the people listening because yeah. in the mainstream health space, um, you know, an animal-based diet, which is something that I'm an advocate for, it started for me with a carnivore diet. And then I added back fruit when I started having muscle cramps and electrolyte issues. And so now an animal-based diet, most of my listeners will know is organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy, but it's focused on animal foods of meat and organs. And for some looking in from the outside, they maybe see this as restrictive. They may say, what do you mean, Paul? Or, or they might ask you, what do you mean, Meg? You don't eat cookies. You don't eat cake. You don't eat soda. You don't eat vegetables. Like, isn't this a restrictive diet? And um, I, I understand this pushback, and this is why I think your story is so important to share with people. The, the mainstream looks at this type of a diet and calls it, as you termed it, restrictive. I think of it as intentional and not necessarily restrictive because you're focusing on the foods that are, in my opinion, uh, and many other people's opinions, the most nutrient dense. So you're getting the most nutrients with the least toxins. That's sort of why I believe this is a good way for humans to eat. But the mainstream nutritional uh, community, mainstream medicine, treating eating disorders would look at this and say it's too restrictive because the mainstream paradigm for treating eating disorders has been to say, and you can correct me if any of this is incorrect, sort of all foods fit. It's okay to eat everything. Don't restrict any food. Eat ice cream if you want. Eat cookies if you want. It's mostly about weight maintenance rather than overall health, um, lack of inflammation, lack of insulin resistance. It, it's about weight maintenance for people with eating disorders, primarily those with anorexia, which are low weight disorders. But it's so interesting to hear this aspect of your story, and maybe you can help um, clarify this a little more for us, that, that it's not just for you, it, it wasn't just the amount of food that you were eating that made the difference, that it sounds to me like the quality of the food made a difference in the way that you feel mentally and physically 
as a human being, as a woman. And, and that's what's most interesting to me because that flies in the face of the modern convention that you shouldn't restrict any foods in someone with an eating disorder. And the sort of asterisk, asterisk that I'll draw up there and that I talked about in the broader scope of this podcast is that what if neuroinflammation is causing something in the brain? We know this happens in depression. We know this happens in many other mental health um, disorders. And so what if you know, it's part, what if the foods that they're asking you to eat by saying all foods fit are worsening the neuroinflammation, never allowing someone to actually make the changes in their brain that are necessary to feel good with this type of illness. But could you speak a little more about any part of what I just said that resonates with you? And specifically, I'm curious if, if, if you feel differently with different food selections, like when you had weight restoration in college and the inpatient treatment program, how did that feel? You said you maintained your weight, but um, you know, does it feel differently now mentally, the way that you see food, the way that you see your body as you've made more intentional food choices? And in this case, chose to exclude some foods, um, like maybe vegetables sometimes, or, but you've at least chosen to focus on animal foods. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, while you're speaking, I, it resonated and it triggered a memory with my treatment experience of, we would have certain things called challenge days. And, um, that theme continued along with my any sort of you know eating disorder specific dietitian that I worked with after you know getting out of treatment. And challenge days included eating foods that were um, standard American. So one specific example I recall was we had a day where we were required to eat as in a group setting um, fried chicken nuggets, fried French fries, followed up by a milkshake and any sort of these challenge days in the treatment setting was a completely different schedule from any other day, meaning that we had extra therapy, we had extra group involvement, extra time with the, the therapist. And in all honesty, it was necessary. Every single one of us uh, patients in that sort of setting were anxious going into the meal, anxious at the meal, extremely anxious after the meal. And, um, you know, we just were told that that's, that's normal. And as you get more and more exposed to those sorts of meals, the less and less power that they have over you. And I bought into it until I noticed a pattern that, you know, every time I sort of you know, feel like I'm in this sort of setting, it is extremely challenging. I feel groggy and sluggish and anxious after every you know, meal of that sort of setting, regardless of whether I was eating it by myself or with a group of supportive people. And, um, once I started eating in a more animal-based way, the nutritional profile was, you know, slightly different from a caloric perspective. Honestly, I was probably eating, um, about the same, if not, not more, but prioritizing quality proteins and fats. And I didn't feel that way. I still don't. And, and I think that combined if, if I had this sort of eating style in treatment combined with some of the more traditional modalities of, you know, group therapy, working with some of the things that um, drew me to using food as a coping tool, um, I feel like I probably wouldn't have relapsed as many times as I've had. And um, so I, I guess in my own anecdotal experience, I can speak to the fact that once I resolved sort of the, the digestive issues and the mental clarity, neuroplasticity issues that was preventing me from really experiencing what I call true recovery today. 
um, I, I feel like this way of eating has allowed me to achieve a level of recovery that I've yet to ever experience, probably even before getting diagnosed with anorexia. And at the same time, it's a way of eating that the mainstream medical establishment and your treatment team, as however mm-hmm. well-intentioned they are, might look at and say, that's too restrictive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, I think, what the conversation that needs to be had, that perhaps there's some value in the quality of foods and the intentionality around foods for these eating disorders. And your case, which is one case, but I think it's an important case, would also stand in contradistinction to the assertion that many in the mainstream space would make, which is that restricting your diet with something like an animal-based diet is going to worsen eating disorders or cause eating disorders. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it certainly sounds like for you, this has been a big help and actually uh, in, in many ways, um, a sort of treatment or preventative in many, in many aspects. Absolutely. And it's interesting, even today, um, if I express the way I eat to any sort of person that has had an eating disorder history or eating disorder, um, an eating disorder practitioner that helps other people through these sorts of things, you know, I, I am praised if I, you know, eat a standard American meal. And if I eat in a meal that is more animal-based and less inclusive of, you know, those standard American foods, it's like, whoa, that's eating disordered. And I personally don't, I don't want to feel bad for eating in a way that makes me feel good. And I think that is a conversation that more and more people need to have, especially in the throes of any sort of mental illness. It's so, it's so important. I mean, during during my training uh, in medical school or in residency, when I would do rotations in psychiatric wards, there's no attention to the quality of the food that we're giving these patients in any way, shape or form. And it always, it never sat well with me. It always made me a little bit uncomfortable. And I always thought, gosh, we're really missing an opportunity here. Whether it was people who came in with anorexia or bulimia or people who came in with psychotic disorders or depression or suicidality, we were not thinking at all about what we were feeding them. They were eating cooked, cookies and cakes and candy and pasta and bread. And just, I'm sure things that were full of seed oils and processed sugars. And there was no attention to this. It was all pharmaceutical focus. And we don't really have effective drugs for effective in quotation marks for eating disorders. So it ends up being a lot of this sort of food therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. But I think that again, the mainstream medical establishment in psychiatric and neuropsychiatric realms is missing a big, powerful lever here what is your what is your diet like these days? Um, my diet is it, it varies. So I'm an athlete, and um, depending on what sort of season of my training I am, will uh, determine about my my more more my carbohydrate and and my protein intake. So the more intense I exercise, the more um, carbohydrates and protein I intake. So um, in terms of whole foods, I eat um, in the mornings. Uh, omelet of sorts with eggs, some sort of meat protein, um, cheese occasionally um, with avocado and um, a piece of fruit. And that fruit or a potato would vary um, based upon my training intensity. Um, and as my lunches and dinner are, dinners are relatively the same. So a, a protein like um, I'm in Texas, so we're in beef country. So it's essentially beef, you know, lunch, dinner, and um, often breakfast at times. So um, beef and uh, a starch if I'm training high and then some sort of fruit or, um, you know, I'm playing around with different vegetables. I find that, 
Um, I feel better with fewer um, cruciferous vegetables, which after following you more and more so, it makes sense. Um, and as I dive more into the science, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. So um, squash or um, you know another another potato of sorts, it's it's probably like like Groundhog Day towards most people, but um, it works for me and makes me feel good. Um, so if I'm again, I wish I had something more of an exciting diet to share, but that's that's pretty much what I eat and. Um, liver occasionally, especially after the animal-based gathering, that um, broke some barriers to um, encourage me to consume more liver and other organs. So I'm playing around with liver and heart from my local farmer. Awesome. Did you eat some raw liver with us at the gathering? I sure did. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, okay. So thank you for sharing this this bit of your story. I want to I wanna sort mm-hmm. of uh, encapsulate this within a broader podcast that I'm going to do on this topic, but I think this is super important. It's great to hear that you're doing well. And it was so cool to see you at the gathering with your boyfriend and how well you guys were doing. What are you training for now? Are you doing a through hike or some long distance running? Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, scoping out an FKT to do. So an FKT is the fastest known time. So I'm hoping that in the summertime I can train for, um, aiming for about a 200 mile fastest known time record. So stay tuned. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So should we, should we give people your social media? Do you want people to be able to reach out to you? Do you want to stay like, you want to cut, do you want to like leave that more anonymous? What do you want to do? Um, sure. I'm an open book and I think that, um, it's helpful for me to share my story more often. It keeps me accountable and holds me in recovery. And if I can help somebody else, then I'd be happy to. So my Instagram is meg.chatham. So you can search me on the crazy runner hiker chick that, uh, post random pictures of my mistakes and falls and tosses and tumbles. So have fun there. C-H-A-T-H-A-M, right? Correct. And I saw on there, there's a post about the gathering. Do you want to tell people about that? Um, sure. The, the waterfall? <laughs> yeah. So um, what was it? Montezuma Falls in Costa Rica. Yeah. I, there, it was a beautiful, beautiful day. So there's two waterfalls. One is a smaller, more bite-sized waterfall that you can jump off of. And um, I jumped off that. And then I saw a Paul Saladino walking towards another cliff and um, jumped off it. And my immediate impulse, well, if Paul can do it, I can do it. So I I um, took the leap of faith and landed quite gracefully, all sarcasm included. So um, my backside is recovering from a series of black and blue and purple hues. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Amazing. And you jumped off that waterfall twice. Well, I thought that, you know, it would make sense. The second time you jump, you learn from the first time and, you know, you change your your patterns, but, um, the second time wasn't the charm, but maybe the third time will. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you there. There were a number of people yeah. who landed on their butts pretty badly on that waterfall, which is probably 30 plus feet for anybody listening there. I'm sure we'll get videos up of it. I don't know if you're in the video, you have it. You can't really see quite how big it is, but it's, it's a legit waterfall to land on your butt. It, 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 it got a few people with bruises. So, Yeah, it was worth it. That was absolutely tremendously exhilarating and makes you feel alive. Amazing. Well, thanks for sharing your story with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks to Meg for sharing her story. I found it particularly compelling during the gathering that she had had significant improvements 
with an animal-based focus. And as you heard in that story, she eats essentially an animal-based diet. She has potatoes occasionally, but most of it is animal-based. I think for her, what I took away from her story was that including animal foods was a significant improvement, but that many of her treatment teams didn't want her to eat more meat, which is again related to the fact that most, I think within the medical community, for some reason, fear meat inappropriately without good evidence. And that she now has libido, she has her period, she's able to function as a hormonally healthy woman. And she has, I think, what appears and what she would say is a healthy approach to food, the best she's ever had with this way of eating that many in the eating disorder community would look at and say, that's too restrictive, it can't be good, it's going to cause eating disorders. But if we believe that there's a neuroinflammatory component and some of the things that she has cut out could be worsening that, she's doing a lot better now. That makes a lot of sense. Again, it's just one anecdote it's an end of one, but there are a lot of people like this. And I think that the overall paradigm of mental health treatment needs to change in this country because millions of people continue to suffer uh, across the world and within the US. And I think that we are not going to get very far with the pharmaceutical centric model. So that is what I will say about that. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast on mental health. Please share it with people that you think may benefit because it is going to challenge a lot of paradigms. And like I said, the reason we do this is not to be unfun. <laughs> Because what we're all about is enjoying life. The reason we do this is to get this message out to people that are continuing to suffer. And if that is not you, then great. Pass it on to someone who is and keep thriving. Love you all. Stay radical.